0: Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Sustainable Ecommerce Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build your brand for a healthier planet. As always, I'm your host, Giles Smith. Now, one of the most important and challenging aspects to sustainability marketing is ensuring that your story is authentic. You can, and of course should, get science-backed proof in the form of certifications, and I'm working on a mini-series to help you with that later in this year. But while those elements are important, they're not the full story. To choose your brand, customers want to know that your products are both better functionally, and better for the environment. Proving sustainability claims with science does just that, without focusing on proving how your product actually solves the customer's problem. So today we're exploring two other forms of proof that check off both of these two problem sets by talking with a founder that I think is doing this particularly well. My guest is Sue Campbell, an Aussie entrepreneur building her solid shampoo brand Kind2 over in the UK. Being bootstrapped, like many brands, cash flow is extremely tight, which means that spending tens of thousands of dollars or pounds on life cycle assessments was out of sight. Yet, Sue knew that customers were never simply gonna take her word for how her shampoo was both effective and kind to the planet. To solve that, she's always placed a strong focus on acquiring two forms of proof that we're talking about today. The first is social proof, and of course, we're talking about reviews and testimonials and the other one is Sustainability Awards. Of all the brands that we've had on the show so far, I think Kind 2 probably has the biggest trophy cabinet, which is no small achievement given that she really only has a handful of products. What I'm excited to share with you is the strategic approach that she's taking to get those awards. So with that, let's start the show. So Campbell, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So what a brilliant brand you have in Kind2. Can't wait to explore the whole story with you uh, on the show today. Uh, But before we get into all the details about, about what you're doing and the incredible things that you've accomplished with the brand, can you please tell us Sue a little bit about yourself and of course how you got started with it?
1: Sure. I guess it's obvious I'm I'm Australian um, and I've spent many years, in fact more than 20 years living overseas now in, in various different countries. So New Zealand, the UK, and Hong Kong. And making the decision to set up Kind 2 was not necessarily that I had one of those kind of light bulb epiphany kind of moments, but it was a gradual situation where I became simultaneously disillusioned with corporate life I guess as many people do and at the same time became a lot more passionate about what could I leave as maybe a legacy or what could I do that was going to challenge myself to make a difference about things that I really cared about and I've always been very passionate about the environment um, from a young age David Attenborough fan, as probably most people are, that are you know, into sustainability and the natural world and spent you know, a lot of my adult life travelling all over the world and, and living in Hong Kong, I really opened up my eyes to the impact of consumerism in Asia in particular because I'm sure everybody who's you know, on the podcast probably been to Asia because it's so close to Australia, but you know, all of the different countries within the region are progressing at different rates. And it's startlingly quick. And so if you've been to a country, you know, say year 2000, and then you go and visit again in in 2020, you can see a stark difference. And it's not always for the better. Um, Mm. Maybe it is for quality of life in some cases, but there was a couple of very specific um, situations when we were travelling where I'd been somewhere, um, you know, in the 90s and then revisited it again during sort of the late 2000s. And what was most noticeable was the difference in plastic pollution, you know, a pristine, beautiful beach that literally was, I mean, an eyesore. And, you know, I understand, of course, that a lot of it's to do with infrastructure and the sheer amount of waste being produced. I also know that plastic waste is produced by Western countries and exported to many of those countries and then isn't necessarily recycled. And it really got me thinking about the sort of the twin things of the rise of plastic pollution, while at the same time you've got a rise in, I guess, consumption and that the role that the large FMCG companies have in promoting their products in developing countries and whether they truly were being responsible in the way that they were growing. And that's actually what got me started thinking about shampoo was seeing you, I don't know if anyone it, has ever seen these They're sort of um, like strips of sauce or something like little tiny sachets that you would see in a a village shop in somewhere like the Philippines really obscure village shop these little sachets hanging they're all plastic they're single use so I know why the companies do it because they're trying to keep the unit price down Mm -hmm. but what they're effectively doing is introducing plastic on a scale that honestly in some places has to be seen to be believed it's pretty grim
0: yeah i agree i I was having this conversation actually just the other day with um uh, with one of my team who's based in in the philippines and she was highlighting to me the difference between what you might see in a shop walking in into australia versus what you see in a local shop in the philippines and like you said it's all about single use plastic sachets of everything Purely because Mm. of the cost of living. And when you multiply that by however many days a week they wash their hair or soap or clean the kitchen or the bathroom or whatever it is that they do, whatever the sachet is for, you realize that quickly adds up to being what I think was recorded uh, sometime last year is that the Philippines actually generate something like 70% of all ocean bound plastic, which is actually staggering in and of itself. Um, That whole thing is just terrifying. But anyway, obviously, that was quite influential uh, for you. And I also resonate with what you're just saying, because some friends of mine live in Bali. And during the during the pandemic, when, of course, nobody was traveling to Bali, what was interesting was that instead of the trash situation getting better, because you, know, you think old tourists are probably creating a bunch of trash, actually, it got significantly worse on the beaches because no one was bothering to go out and clear it up anymore to make it look nice for the tourists. And so ended up the beaches, the beautiful beaches, many of which I've been to over the years, ended up being ankle deep in plastic rubbish and trash and all sorts of things. Uh, you know, and they had to do a fairly massive community-based cleanup exercise on many of the beaches before they, you know, were ready to open up for tourists again. So I totally hear what you're saying, but anyway, sorry, back to you.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned the cleanup because as I said, there was a sort of series of things. So one was, you know, travel, seeing plastic piled up in villages in obscure places. And another specific instance was when, as part of my my team in Hong Kong, you know, we'd decided that we'd always do community work on a sort of quarterly basis and we'd pick different things to do so we decided to do a beach cleanup we went to a beach on one of the outlying islands we spent all afternoon there we collected 90 bin bags and honestly you couldn't even tell we'd been there it was yeah. just grim and that in also really made me think about the fact that okay, okay well it's good to clean up but that's not really a dress, it's but the tsunami of plastic, and here we are picking up a couple of pl- single-use plastic bottles, I mean, really we have got to think a lot more laterally and think, well, how can we prevent plastic at source or reduce plastic at source? Prevent probably is unrealistic. Yeah. But that's actually, again, what made me start to think about what are the products that we use plastic in, which actually if you take a step back and think about it, do you, does it really need to be liquid in a plastic bottle? And ultimately that led me down the path of, of shampoo, It clearly yeah. doesn't need to be liquid in a plastic bottle. It's just that's the way the vast majority of it is sold.
0: I mean, that's a brilliant segue to move on and talking about the brand then with Kind2. Obviously, you've, you've dropped a few words there, shampoo, plastic, uh, you know, not liquid and so on. So tell us a little bit about what Kind2 actually does, Sue.
1: So Kind2, we make and sell hair care. So for both humans and dogs now, so shampoo and conditioner in a solid format, 100% plastic-free. It's literally is a block of shampoo. It's absolutely not soap. It's formulated to be shampoo. Um, works just like the regular shampoo. You've got water in the shower when you use it. You rub the bar on your hair. It foams up. You rinse it out and you have lovely clean shiny hair
0: okay what's the difference then for layman's like me and i don't have much hair as you can see uh but what little hair i do have i'm not necessarily uh clued up on the difference between soap and shampoo so for the layman amongst us what is the difference and why isn't it soap
1: yeah a good question and so soap. confusingly there is sometimes shampoo bars that are made from soap that are called shampoo bars so that adds to the confusion about the whole thing so It's fundamentally a different formulation. Soap is made through a process of taking your chosen oils, applying caustic soda or lye, um, that creates a chemical reaction which is saponification, which turns it into a product that you'd use on your body to foam up and helps through surface tension take away excess oil and dirt. However, the process means that it has quite a high pH level. So our skin is about five and a half or so, which is on the acidic range of pH scale. Soap tends to be in the sort of eight to 10 range, depending on how it's made and so forth. So that's an alkaline product. And so when you hear people complain about how soap might make their skin feel dry, um, that's why, because there's a mismatch in the level of acidity. And so if you translate that into washing your hair with a bar of soap, your hair, your scalp is, is even more acidic than your the, uh, your skin. It basically is why it might feel either like it's been stripped of all of its oil or heavy and greasy. just doesn't feel quite right. Mm. And so a well-formulated shampoo bar is formulated to be consistent pH with our skin. In the case of the dog shampoo, it's actually a different pH to the human shampoo. And it's used we use a coconut-based surfactants. And so we're able to adjust the pH because there's a series of different um ingredients that enables you to adjust it. And it still works in the same method, foams up, you know, reduces surface tension and, and takes away dirt. Long explanation. It's a hard thing to explain. But I yeah. guess the for most people who've used a cake of soap on their skin, they would probably have experienced a bit of drying. And I would say, in most cases, using soap on your hair is not a good idea. You've been
0: in, a, in quite an interesting journey then from, you know, conceptualizing this thing, that this this shampoo that wouldn't need plastic, trying to make it non-liquid and, and stuffing it into a solid form. That's quite a journey for someone, well, anyone really. Uh, how did you take that jenny i mean were you were you a chemical scientist before were you in the pharmaceutical space or in the cosmetic space how did you do that
1: so i'm absolutely not a chemist or a scientist um my corporate life involved um i actually worked in the recruitment industry for most of my life so and i was in a leadership position when i decided to do this um one of the benefits of being in that role was actually that it was revolved around outsourcing so i mean my perspective is if you want to do something well you engage people who are experts. And I knew that I didn't have the expertise to develop a shampoo. Um, And I also was aware enough that theres it's almost like a sort of an underlying concern that people have, and I guess I'm talking generically, customers have that an eco-friendly product may not perform as well as a regular product. Mm. And so I, I, I approached it from the point of view of thinking, I want to make sure that the product we produce is as good as if not better in terms of performance and there is no way I'm going to be able to do that if I'm cooking that up in my kitchen. Yeah. And so I decided that I would outsource the formulation to a cosmetic formulator um, who was an expert and therefore I could you know, use their knowledge after having briefed them to get the outcome that I wanted, um, which sounds Simple finding one's a whole different story, but
0: <laughs> well, I, I imagine it was because I mean, where's we were just sort of you know chatting about before we hit the record button? You know, your brand's been around a fair while since really. I guess there weren't many shampoo bars on the market when you first launched, and I can only imagine the conversations that you would have had with some of those formulators. Were you know them saying you want to do what? Yeah. So how did you you know as, as as an absolute startup brand from someone that had been in HR? How did you approach those conversations to get them to do what you wanted to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the advantages of working in recruitment, you know, I started out a long time ago running a desk and that means that you know, you're doing a lot of cold calling. So, you know, put my cold calling socks back on, picked up the phone and, yeah, you know, I literally just called every single one of the contract manufacturers and formulators in the UK and I writ- had a written scripted brief, so I couldn't eventually get through to people. The vast majority of them did, and in fact still do, make liquid products in plastic bottles. So they're mm. like, interesting idea, but I can't help you. And then I ended up getting through to a couple of manufacturers who said they could do it, but they said that they wanted to use their formulation, which meant that I wouldn't have owned the intellectual property. And I mm. decided that wasn't the route that I wanted to go down. Um, and then- Every single time someone would say no, it's a bit like what you do in recruitment. Now, if someone says, no, they don't want your job, you say, well, do you know someone who does? I literally would say, well, okay, do you know someone else who can help me? So I would always get at least one more potential manufacturer or formulator. And then eventually I got to talking to someone and they knew of an independent formulator who they ra- rated very highly. Um, and then that's eventually I found somebody who was independent of a factory, so she that's all she does is she's formulator, gives the um, formulation over to the brand, and then you have to find your own manufacturer, which, again, is another challenge. But um, I also thought that was good from the point of view of her independence meant that she wasn't sort of tied into using any particular brands or any of those Mm. sorts of things in the way she did it. Um, She'd never done a solid hair care product before. She'd done a lot of hair care, though, thankfully. That was actually the reason I ended up choosing this particular formula later.
0: Yeah. And so you mentioned IP there. I'm guessing there's a lot of smarts that have gone into your actual product formulation to make sure that it does stack up. Because this is a story that we hear so very often from consumers in the marketplace about eco-friendly products, and I use the term with air quotes around it, that, that the perception is, well, you know, if it's made from plants, if it's made from organic, you know, materials or certified organic stuff, it's not going to be as good as the stuff that people have been chemically engineering to to specifically do that thing. And look, the reality is often that's fair. In some cases, yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so how do you go about then, the smarts have gone into the, how you formulated it. How do you tell that story to customers and, and and how do you approach make helping them understand how and why it's better? To be honest,
1: that's quite challenging. I mean, you with a product that's still quite niche maybe within the sustainable world everybody probably knows about shampoo bars but you've got to remember we're in an echo chamber people out there in the real world that I talk to occasionally they're like what what do you mean you, you want you rub it on your head etc mm. um, so I think you yeah, know the role of all sustainable brands involves a bit of educating people about you know how to use a product um, you know maybe the benefits of the product rather than um, you know the the features, so really talking about how it makes your hair feel healthy. Why does it make your hair feel healthy? Well, that's because it's got oil in it, and that oil is good for your hair versus stripping the natural um, oils out. But you know, you've touched on it already. There's two things that I did as part of the strategy: is focus on social proof early on, and that social proof. I mean, it's all well and good for me to say how fantastic my product is. Well, of course, I'm going to say that, mm. you know, but you know, I need real users, consumers, customers to be able to sort of talk about it um, and in a way that makes sense. and I also need some sort of validated external you know, proof. So so I, you know, I guess I looked at I looked at a lot of other hair care brands and I looked at where and when you know, they'd won awards, the, even some of the language that they used to describe their products looked at the language that their customers used to describe their products. Um, and so one of the things was when we launched our shampoo bars, there were people that had, other brands had shampoo bars, but they didn't describe the products in terms of what they would do or what type of hair they would be suited to. So, that, for example, they'd say it's a lavender shampoo bar or, or a you know, rosemary or something like that. So they talk about the fragrance, mm. whereas I went into Boots, which is, a big retailer here, most of hair care in the UK sold through Boots. And I went and looked at shampoo brands and how did L'Oreal describe their products, et cetera, et cetera, and realised that you know, people are buying based upon their hair type or their hair need. I did research, I went to the British Library, looked at all the Mintel reports, understood what people described as their hair needs um, and, again, ranked it and that was actually the order of products that we put out. And we strategically, I suppose you would say, entered awards um industry awards so beauty industry awards for specific products um to try and get this external validation um and i guess we've been fortunate because we've won quite a number of awards you know that's one of the things i'm probably the proudest of because it says to me that it's not just me that thinks it's great clearly yeah people who know what they're doing in the industry think it's great Um, and then also through the review customer review process literally not quite actually not from day one probably sort of a month in um you know i was on the steepest learning curve about e-com i mean honestly knew nothing about it at all when we started um and so i just basically looked at other competitors and then we started asking for consumers or our customers for reviews um and have done that consistently since sort of since day kind of Twenty-five or something like that. <laughs> I realised right. I should have done it from day one, um and ask people to, I guess, to talk about it in language that made sense to people who might be potential purchasers. So actually, ask not just what do you think, but say you know, something along the lines of, you know, imagine you know you're buying solid shampoo for the first time. What are the sorts of things that you'd like to tell other people, and how can you? So how can the customer help other people make good decisions? Yeah. Um, how can you spread the word, basically?
0: I love that. And and of course, you've just hit on the two things that I knew I wanted to ask you about very cleverly um, already. The uh, one was, you know, your approach to getting the awards because your your trophy cabinet must be stock full of them. Every single product's littered. No, that's the wrong word. Completely, completely. <laughs> We're not litter. <laughs> no, no, exactly. The, every single product is highlighted by so many awards that you've won. Um So I'll come back to awards in a second, because I know that's a whole strategy in itself. If I can, I'd like to drill in a little bit deeper on reviews, because I think every brand, let's say 90% of brands knows to ask for reviews, but not many get them, right? I mean, when I first, when I start working with clients, you know, I often find that they're saying, oh, we get maybe one in a hundred of our orders comes back with a review. And so that's an interesting metric. And I think, you know, generally speaking, the e-commerce industry, yeah, you know, most people aim for about five or 6%. I don't know where you sit on that, but certainly with 700 or around about that reviews on your site, you're doing very well. So um, how do you approach that conversation? Are you incentivizing people? Are you saying you get a free product if you leave us a review? What are you doing to get them to leave that all important visible feedback?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely hard to get reviews. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I think that consumers are facing a bit of, you know, review fatigue. So yeah. during COVID, people were more, in, you know, I found that the percentage of reviews that we got from number of orders was higher. I can't remember exactly, but I just know instinctively it was much higher. Then I think people just get busy. Yeah, it's pretty low priority for most people. And so a couple of things, I think the ease of the platform that you use, how easy it is for your customer to write a view. Do they have to click on and go onto a website or whatever? And once it's two clicks, you like, forget it it's got to be yeah. really simple the timing of the review so we've experimented quite a bit with the timing so you, know, you, you order your product let's say on monday let's say in the uk probably arrive on wednesday maybe you might use it thursday but then i know for myself i don't always buy a product use it that day so mm. we don't send the reviews um the day it arrives we send it sort of 10 days or so roughly after the order is placed, give it enough time for it to arrive, someone play around with it. And then we send another reminder in two weeks and then another reminder in another week um, because the patterns of people using them is quite different. And we ask, I, I did a course actually quite a long time ago about, um, about how you use social proof to help encourage positive behaviour change. And it was really enlightening because, you know, it's very easy to get caught in the trap of, Plastic pollution is bad, you know, mm. blah, blah. That's why you should use our product. Um, but in actual fact, if you say, Giles, you're a fantastic human being because you have made the decision to not use plastic anymore and wouldn't it be wonderful if you told other people about doing that? And we rewrote our review request in a much more friendly, you know, thank you so much you're a great human because you're doing this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could tell more people about this and encourage them to make a difference as well? That
0: actually made a difference to our reviews. I feel good you just telling me that, even though I haven't bought one yet. That's how effective that strategy is. That's awesome. I love it. We, you know What you've just done is you've just demonstrated in practice something that we call um, using hero language. And hero language is about putting... Uh, making sure the customer is the hero in the conversation, not your brand. So you've just demonstrated that. I I, I promise everybody that's listening, I did not prompt that. I didn't know you were going to say that, Sue, but I love it because that's so demonstrative, demonstrative of the best approach to the conversation. And the timing's perfect too. I love this notion of giving them up to about three or four days after they've received the product before you ask for a review. The day of receiving the item is in some respects the best day. But actually, not really. It's the best day in the sense that that's the that's the moment of of maximum excitement when they're unboxing. That's why unboxing videos are so incredibly popular, right? Because that's the exciting part. Oh, I've got this thing! Look how look how lovely these look. Whatever else, right? That's so. A lot of people make the mistake of jumping in straight away then and sending the review off the back of the shipping confirmation. But the reality is, you need to give them some mm. time and hit them up while they're still enjoying it. But once they've used it for a bit, if you wait another two weeks or three weeks until they've really used up the whole bar, they've probably lost that momentum, that excitement, you know, has, has rolled off a bit. It's great that you're following up, but that first email, you've timed that really, really well. So I think that's fantastic.
1: I can't tell you statistically what proportion of people put their reviews in the first, second, or third request. I could have a look. But um, but interesting, one of the challenges we now have is we have an incredibly high customer mm. repeat purchase rate. Um, it's yep. in the 60% range. Um, yeah. And, of course, you can only ask someone for it. Or, but the software that we use, the particular um, platform—it's an app attached to Shopify—is clever enough that if somebody has left a review for yes. a product, it doesn't ask them again. It's actually probably one of the things that annoys me
0: the most. What's your app tip, Sue? What which one are you using?
1: I love Judge Me.
0: You're obviously using that platform incredibly well, but. Anyway, enough about reviews. Awards, my goodness, what a trophy cabinet you have. Please do share some tips if you can about how you approach getting awards because that doesn't just happen. You can't just sit there as a brand and suddenly get, glittered and showered with awards i don't well at least maybe you can maybe you have i don't know maybe i'm talking out of turn here but i don't think you do so i think you have to work for them how do you approach it
1: So i said earlier we did it quite strategically from the point of view of i looked at every award that i've ever entered i looked at who had won previously so i looked for patterns of you know did they typically award to big brands versus indie brands you know what were the qualities that they talked about in you know their awards um i guess it's a case of competition but also the perspective from those particular awards so you know where we haven't done well is the the awards from magazines because quite oddly seems to be their advertisers that do well you, know, you only need to have a look mm. at a few years awards to work out that that's the case Suspicious. um, <laughs> suspiciously so um and look you know i understand how those things work so we looked for ones that were independent that had the opportunity for you to provide product samples so that someone wasn't just looking at your entry form and taking it on face value that you actually had to provide products that people would try because I was so confident that if they tried them they'd really like them so we particularly looked at those things independence um, transparency um, there's a couple of awards that no one award I'm actually a judge on that I think is fabulous because you not only give products to them for them to try, they've, they've got a panel of, of testers and so on, and give 10 products, you get the feedback from the testers as well, which is really valuable. So this is the free from skincare awards. And having that feedback is it's great as a brand. I mean, you often get a bit of a you know you kind of get the extremes in reviews, don't you? you get, People give you five stars, they love it, and then of course, you, of course, you get one one star reviews. But yeah. what you don't always get is a real sense of the middle. And when you go to an award and you give ten samples and people try it for six weeks and they have to write you know, five hundred words back to the review company um, for the award, you're getting an amazing degree of you know, basically consumer research that would cost. Yeah. Thousands of pounds.
0: That's an absolute genius approach and genius strategy. I never thought about that. To be honest with you, I think that's absolutely fantastic. What a great way of getting really detailed feedback that you, you like you say, you will never ever, not in a million years, get in a review in a you know norm, from a normal purchaser.
1: Yeah, yeah. So been very helpful, and we took on board some of the feedback that we got, and we started with three products. Um, now we have six main human skews and another two dog skews, but. Feedback from customers influenced heavily the subsequent um, products that we put out, so that we launched. Um, So it was very deliberate to try yeah try three get some feedback and then work out what
0: the next three should be so talking about obviously you've extended out from human hair care to doggy hair care which i love by the way
1: i know it's interesting isn't it it's obviously a totally different category um right came about because i had actually quite a number of people suggest it to me you know so literally in the space of six months maybe not a statistically valid number and, you know, four or five people were like why don't you do dog shampoo why don't you do dog shampoo and I was like mm, okay I hadn't really thought about it I don't own a dog so I started to do a bit of research and I realized that in a similar way to with the human shampoo when I launched it within the dog shampoo category there is very little true shampoo there's some soap people wash their dogs with soap for the same reason that I described earlier, soap's the wrong pH for a dog's skin as well. Dogs are neutral, around seven or so. Um, I thought, well, there is a, it solves a need. Um, it supports my mission. I mean, it still helps eliminate plastic. Pet ownership is on the rise. Um, you know, pet ownership during the pandemic is a high degree. And people like to use healthy products on their dogs. I mean, they care mm. about their animals. So, um One of the things in any kind of pet product, there doesn't have to be full disclosure of the ingredients. It's not required by law. In human cosmetics, it is. And if I I had a dog, I'd be very uncomfortable about using something if I didn't know what was in it, Um, maybe because I'm an educated customer who really likes to know what's in things. But dogs also have incredibly sensitive noses. Everybody Mm -hmm. knows that. But if you pile synthetic fragrance into a product that you use on a dog, if you think it smells strong like a fake watermelon, imagine what they must smell. Horrendous. Mm. So I saw, to be honest, I saw a commercial opportunity, but it was consistent with our mission to be helping reduce plastic at source. Um, I thought it's an interesting category. There's a, there is an opportunity because there truly isn't very much in the way of proper dog shampoo. Um, I'll test it out. So that's, that's really where it went. I mean, I didn't put much more thought into it to, than that.
0: So the obvious next question is, how's it going?
1: Well, it's very what's very interesting is learning for me. My it would clearly appear that most of my existing customers are not dog owners at all. Which is something, so, you yeah, know, in, in hindsight, maybe I should have tested that out. Some are, and we we got before we launched the product, we did get some existing human shampoo customers to test it out before we finalized it and got great feedback. But I thought in the, the world of Venn diagrams, that there'd be more of an overlap mm. than there actually is. And so we found that the our website works really well for a, a, finding consumers that are interested in hair care. We do very well from an SEO point of view with a couple of uh, our blogs that are very educational. Um, but we found that the sales channel for our website, for the dog shampoo, has not been as successful as we hoped it would be. We found that other channels, um, I guess I would say, Embarrassingly, Amazon works better for dog shampoo. Um people we people buy pet products on Amazon. Mm. And so now I think we've got a really interesting situation where you know, the two different categories are behaving in two two different ways. Um we're working on now trying to get a lot more wholesale in the pet category. That's actually where I think the big opportunity is. Mm. Um we're in discussions with in fact with a hopefully an exclusive Australian stockers for our dog shampoo. Um and we're in discussion with some of the bigger chains here for the dog shampoo because I, I do think you know people buy, they go to a pet store, they buy a whole bunch of things for their dog, having it on a shelf. And yeah. I've been going to pet stores, something I had no, no reason to do before as part of my market research. Um, but it is selling very well on Amazon and the reviews have been consistently fantastic. So I know we're onto something. We've just got to get it, the sales strategy worked out.
0: Very, very interesting. And, and, and you know, it, may, it I mean, from a product diversification point of view, it absolutely makes 100% sense. You know, it seems like a no-brainer thing to do, but you're right. And this is where... You know, I was just saying I can't decide whether it is or isn't a natural extension because it does seem like a very different marketing message. You know, the emotionally driven kind of benefits around why the shampoo itself is so much better for their hair and the environment is probably quite different conceptually to why it's good for a dog or for a pet owner. And, you know, the benefits probably a bit different, Um, even though, once again, all the same features kind of cross over the benefits and how you sell those things are probably very different. And yeah. so I can see why that's, that's a very, that's an interesting challenge. And I think it's fascinating that you've already recognized that wholesale might be the best growth pathway in terms of sheer scale for your dog yeah. shampoo, because it probably is about quantity at this point. I imagine it's a lower margin product um, than, than your human shampoo, it uh, is. I would imagine. So that means it's all about quantity. So wholesale makes sense.
1: Absolutely. It does. So, so yeah, anyone who's listening who owns a pet store, get in touch.
0: <laughs> and so I want to just want to touch on one ingredient element um cuz that I I was digging through all of your sustainability stuff before we came on and I just want to touch on this cuz I've never seen anybody else do this and I you know I might have missed it but the notion of using upcycled materials as ingredients in your personal care products, in your in your shampoo products, mm-hmm. in your shampoo bars, that's a fascinating one to me. I'd love to uh, love you to talk about the journey that you went on with that. Why you went down that line, how you decided which ones to use, where you got them from, you know, not necessarily the detail suppliers, but how did you conceptualize and go from okay, I've got a working shampoo bar now how do I make it better and more environmentally friendly by consuming some upcycled products in this
1: yeah sure so I guess using upcycled anything is it's a principle of circularity isn't it so you just sort of think about you know what could we possibly use that is the least waste or is a waste byproduct from something else and I'd have to say upcycled and or you know, circular products. It's quite a big thing in the UK. Um, and again, that's probably in my kind of you know, cave of sustainable businesses, because you know, you mm. kind of know all these people doing things. Um, we'd already formulated the shampoos and then we looked at the ingredients, and I I mean, honestly, I just thought I know there's a couple of I'd heard whispers of a couple of upcycled you know, product suppliers. So I hunted them down, found out which. Ingredients they actually used, and one in particular was hemp seed. Hemp grows in the UK as well, and it's very hard with a product like ours to find ingredients that are actually grown here mm. for obvious climate reasons. Um, and so I was really keen to make sure that we included at least one product that you knew that could be physically sourced from the UK. Um, so knowing that hemp seed oil um, is created from the seeds, it's a byproduct. Um, from food manufacturing. Um, and so, you know, we again, you know, I just picked up the phone, called them up and said, hi, you know, I'm, you know, this is my brand, this is what we're doing, you know, is this the sort of product that we could use? Found out that it actually is technically exactly the same as the non-upcycled product in terms of performance for what we needed. Um, and that was with one of the products in the first group that we launched. And then when we launched our, our second three, I deliberately wanted to make sure that there was an upcycled ingredient in there. So we formulated um, around an idea of using charcoal, upcycled mm. charcoal, because the product itself is for oily hair. Charcoal is great for oil absorption and it gives a lovely grey colour. So it did a couple of things that, you know, salt twin problems in fact i guess it's really solved three problems the the oil absorption the color and it also meant that we were able to include a non-toxic color um, that was also upcycled so yeah we, we would like to there is more and more of that happening it's sometimes hard to find the right combination of you know ingredient and consistency of supply chain consistency of supply in upcycled ingredients is
0: incredibly challenging i imagine it would be and of course you've then got the messaging around it as well, I guess. Is is messaging to market something that you focused on with about around using upcycled ingredients or not really?
1: I touched on it. Um, I don't think we've gone really hard on that. And mm. I'm not sure that people really care is the truth. Yeah. Um, I think it's a bit of a nice to have. They're more interested really in product product efficacy. I mean, in the, the products where we do use the upcycled ingredients, we mention it, um, but we don't make it the sort of main message. Because I guess you're buying a hair care product. The main message is, is it going to clean my hair? Is it going to make my hair healthy? Then secondary to that, is it good for the environment? Mm. I would just see this as being the icing on the cake.
0: So that brings me nicely onto the next obvious question, which is what's next for Kind2 over the next sort of couple of years? Where do you see it all going? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Uh, you know, what are the big goals that you have for the brand?
1: I mean, definitely expanding overseas. Um, I mean, I think there is market in you know, outside of the UK. Um, you know, the UK's had a pretty tough couple of years with Brexit and you know, mm. general state of economic um, situation. So definitely moving overseas. We tossed up with other products and tested a few different things. Um, But at this point, not settled on anything that I think is the right thing to do. Um, We're trying to do a lot more collaborations now that we're more established. We're collaborating with other sustainable brands, because I think that's a really fantastic way of sort of sharing each other's audiences and um, taking the learnings from each other. So we've got some things coming up in Plastic Free July with some similar types of brands collaboration. Um, If I could walk into Sainsbury's or Waitrose, um, I guess the equivalent of Coles and and Woolies in in Australia, and I could look down the shampoo aisle and I could see that 20% or even 50% of the products were solid, they don't have to be kind to, I would be overjoyed. And so you know, we are now in that phase, um, and I'm sure that there's a specific word that you used in one of your webinars that I loved where you go from early adopters to sort of into that mainstream. Our product, we're in that really hard part where, Mm. you know, it's not as if no one's heard of it, but if you go up to a person in the street, they don't know what a shampoo bar is, and if you go into Sainsbury's, you can't buy one. Mm. Um, I want to see solid shampoo as being absolutely beyond just sort of an aspirational product. I want it to be mainstream
0: yeah and mainstream you know i think is maybe even the word you're looking for there i don't know but all brands at the moment are in the period of of mainstream consumer adoption but of course there's layers uh of consumers within that big fat chunk of mainstream uh depending on where they are on their on their own research and their own sustainability journey so you know it comes back to what you said earlier on around education education and transparency are the two things that are going to get you sort of across the line for all of those people because it's it's going to help them no matter where they are in their journey so i love that so where do we get kind to shampoo
1: well they say absolutely on our website we ship internationally um, i know sometimes shopping, shipping makes it expensive if you're not buying in the uk so we do have stock in Canada and we ship most most of our product is sold on our website um so I'd say that is probably the best place to buy it because it gives also gives you a bit more flexibility about whether you you are know, just trying you can buy a small discovery size bars if you just want to test it out so yeah and it's kind 2.me
0: why did you choose the .me at the end out of interest
1: um com was taken and we didn't want it to be co UK and kind to people actually oddly, sometimes refer to our brand as kind to me so we just sort of thought it was an interesting
0: and that, that a makes 100 sense i don't know why i didn't think about that but now it's just so blatantly obvious now that you've said it like that of course yeah it makes it makes complete sense well thank you so much for sharing your amazing story what a great brand you're having kind to encourage everyone to go and have a look at it it really is fantastic and of course you were one of the early brands into the marketplace doing uh bar based or solid based shampoo which is which is exciting and so i hope you see a lot of success with your uh, international expansion plans um and i hope we see you in australia as a brand on our shelves very soon
1: i hope so too thank you giles
0: okay back to giles again for my top takeouts and firstly Sue shared some great points about getting social proof in the form of reviews. A decade ago you didn't get asked to leave a review all that much, but the explosion of e-commerce brands and review platforms has changed all that, so it is much harder to get them now than it used to be. You do need a more compelling angle than just please leave a review in exchange for five dollars off your next purchase. I really like the way Sue approaches the wording, positioning the customer as the hero in her purpose-driven mission. And I can't stress enough how much more effective that is. In fact, your strategy for getting reviews doesn't start with the review request. It goes all the way back to how you've positioned your compelling brand story and your customer's role in helping you make an impact. If you've done that well, your review request becomes a natural extension of the hero's story, an opportunity for them to share their story and invite other people to enjoy the good vibes too. As you heard though, timing is also important. When you send requests will vary a little bit on how people use and consume your product. And like anything, you may need to experiment a bit to see what works best. A couple of things certainly to avoid though, don't send the review request before the customers receive the product and that means you need to think about how the automation gets triggered. And also make sure you don't send review requests to people who have already left reviews on that product. That's a sure way to annoy them and to stop them opening up review requests for other products in the future. So let's now talk about awards. I really do admire Sue's strategic approach to this. She takes time to hunt down the best awards to go for, ignoring things like magazine awards whose focus tends not to be on small independent brands. Look for who's won previously and seek out awards where brands similar to yours have won in the past. Look for awards where samples need to be provided because doing so means that someone or perhaps a panel of people will be trying out your product and can give you detailed feedback as part of the judging process. That kind of information is absolutely gold, not just because you're unlikely to ever get that detail from consumers, but also because the judges are likely experienced in the field and could be comparing your product directly with other similar products at the same time, which means you're gonna get really really valuable competitor comparison information. So I hope you took inspiration for listening to Sue's story today. I want to thank her again for sharing that information so freely. I'll be back again with you next week with more stories from the world of sustainable e-commerce, so until then keep building your brand for a healthier planet.